listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. One of the first things I remember about my dear wife, now Melissa, when I first met her was her practice of making mixtapes for her friends, particularly the kind of mixtapes that you would take on a road trip. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? See, I didn't come from the generation of Spotify or Apple Music. I came from the generation of Napster and iTunes, if you know what I'm saying. So Melissa would, she would open up her laptop and she would slide in a blank compact disc, okay? Y'all know what that is, but it's a thing. And she would turn on iTunes and she would burn away, baby. She put on her favorite Beyonce tracks, some Copeland, some Stravinsky, some India Irie. See, she had eclectic taste, still does. And that soundtrack that she made for her friends or for your road trip was supposed to accompany you while you were on the journey wherever you were going. But see, I wanted to return the favor, and I remember the first time I made her a road trip mixtape. Mm-hmm. We weren't dating at that point. <laughs> we were just friends for almost a year. But I, feel, I put a few tracks on that mixtape, see, that later caught her by surprise, because those tracks were maybe about love, you see. And so she would later tell me she was driving on Interstate 40 or whatever it was and listening to them. And, oh, whoa, I wonder why this track's on here. <laughs> I knew what I was doing. <laughs> See, a, a well-mixed road trip mixtape was not just meant to be background music for someone's journey. See, it could shape messages from your heart to another person's heart. It could shape the trajectory of your relationship. It could form the bond that you had together. You hear what I'm saying? The people singing Psalm 122 were singing it back in the day as part of a road trip mixtape. These psalms were called the Psalms of Ascent because these 14 psalms from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134 were what the people used as they traveled three times a year up to Jerusalem for one of the big festivals. It's a pilgrim song. It's meant to remind all of the Israelites, all 12 tribes of them, who they were, what they were a part of, and what the Lord was calling them to be in the world. It was reminding them that life is a journey with God. And there are some important things to remember along the journey. And as we close the Psalms this week for the summer, Songs in the Key of Life, really I remark that all the Psalms are like this. They all function as a holy mixtape for our journey. As Eugene Peterson said, the Psalms have always been the primary means by which Christians learned to pray everything they live and live everything they pray over a whole lifetime. And as I've tried quite repeatedly to absorb the feel and the theme of this track, this song of scripture, as I've tried to distill it, I've come to two words. And you all might laugh here because those two words don't plop out of thin air because after all, I'm the pastor of worship and formation. Uh, so this is very on brand for me. But in all seriousness, I believe that worship and formation are crucial realities to the life of the people of God, and they are the, the crucial things that pop out of Psalm 122 to me, worship and formation. But this psalm is done in a particular flavor with a particular Hebrew word that's repeated over and over and over again. 
In our English, we translate it peace, but if you were listening to the song sung in Hebrew, it would sound like this, shalom, 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 shalom. You would also hear the word Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which in, uh, which in Hebrew is Yerushalayim. It means city or foundation of shalom, city of peace. So that's what I want to use. I want to use the psalm on its own terms. And I want to say that this psalm is about two things this morning. It is worshiping the God of shalom and being formed into the way of shalom. Worship and formation. So first, worshiping the God of shalom. To get into the imaginative space of this psalm, which is distant to us in time and in place, I would like for you to imagine this morning a 14-year-old young Hebrew woman named Micaiah. She is part of the tribal clan of the Simeonites. She lives at the far southern end of Israel in a town called Beersheba. It's about 100 kilometers from Jerusalem. And three times a year, every year, whenever possible, her family prepares to take a big road trip. It's a multi-generational, most like, multi-generational family, most likely. Most were in the ancient Near East, so you got babies and kids and parents and grandparents and everyone. There's lots of arrangements that have to be made. You got to figure out how you're going to get to Jerusalem, first of all. You got to pack the right clothes. You can't wear that. It's not appropriate for church. <laughs> you got to figure out where to stay once you're in Jerusalem. You got to figure out how to eat for a few weeks during this road trip. See, worship for Micaiah's family, it took a good bit of intentionality. It took work. It took repetition, and it took practice. And no doubt, as Micaiah's family journeyed by walking and riding a donkey, perhaps ever so slowly, keep in mind Beersheba is about 20 uh, hours of walking away from Jerusalem, this road trip mixtape that was playing within the lungs and ears of the family would be called these Psalms of Ascents. I can imagine these 14 Psalms playing over and over again and that they had distinct melodies that went with them, distinct ways of singing them that are now lost to us. And now, as the family begins to journey, they sing the first song, they sing the first stanza of the song, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Maybe if it's part of your story, it's like going home for the holidays, being welcomed in by your family of origin. That's the kind of sense that the singers are singing in this psalm. See, our hypothetical character, Micaiah, her life would have been shaped by this rhythm, this call to come back to the city of God, the foundation of Shalom, Jerusalem. The first month of the Jewish year would roll around, and she knew it was time for Pesach, or Passover time. It was the time for all of God's people to celebrate when Yahweh had saved them from the impression of Egypt and from slavery. And then in, in the third month, when in their agricultural life, the first fruits of the field would start to spring up and they would celebrate Shavuot, or later called the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost, a time to start to dedicate their work to God and to hear his commandments as they celebrated the time when Yahweh gave the law on Mount Sinai. And then towards the end of the year, in the seventh month, the celebration of Sukkot, or the Feast of Booths, as it was called. When the people of God celebrated all of what God had done in the harvest, they brought the harvest back to God, back to Jerusalem, and they celebrated how God had blessed them in the land. 
See, at Passover time, the people remembered God's redemption. And at Pentecost, they remembered God's commandments. And at Booths, they remembered God's blessing to them. They were a redeemed people, a commanded people, and a blessed people. See, worship for Micaiah's family provided the structure for their lives. It was central to their whole sense of time and calendar and regular practice of life. It helped the people of God situate themselves in a bigger story, not just their local thing they had going on, their local life, their local family uh, dynamics, their local complications in life or their suffering. It provided a very structure of reality that answered central questions to what it meant to be a human being. Who made the world? Why is it so beautiful? But why is life so grueling and hard and suffering? What about the bad that I have done or the bad that's been done to me? Are we going to be all right? See, worship provided a structure for answering those questions and for understanding time itself. Everything could be found within worship, creation, shalom, love, beauty, sin, grace, holiness, justice, generosity, hope, gratitude, all of it. They gathered together to remember the goodness of who God was. And as the psalm says, to give thanks as it was decreed. And they all remembered these things together, and so their worship was full of gladness and joy and thanksgiving. Not because they loved everyone around them or because the music was hot. (laughs) Their worship was full of joy because they found the one reason worth worshiping in the first place, which is God. Not any other thing. It was remembering who God was, what God had done. And when you truly know the God who is love, you will find it irresistible to come back to his house, you see. He's not a parent that's perpetually disappointed that you don't measure up. He's a welcoming God. And so as Micaiah's family finally arrives at Jerusalem, I hope maybe you can enter into that imaginative space of the scripture. They are singing Psalm 122 in a fully arrived and embodied way. They say, our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as as it was decreed. And their thrones for judgment were set the thrones of the house of David. The worshiper, I want you to picture her and her family within the city walls of Jerusalem. She is saying both literally and figuratively, She says Jerusalem is bound firmly together in our translations. But basically what she's saying is that every stone that has come into Jerusalem is in its right place. It is in unity within itself, bound firmly together. And I think what the psalm is doing is it's using a real architectural reality metaphorically. Because right after this, what does it say? That all the tribes of Israel have come in, into this city, into this dwelling place, into the city of Shalom. For a young girl, let's say this Simeonite girl from Beersheba in the far south, there would have been regional and tribal differences that showed themselves once all the tribes got together at Jerusalem. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you can just go read the historical books of the Old Testament where you'll find out that tribal realities are uh, distinct (laughs) and that even people who are maybe uh, from the outside culturally the same, all Hebrews, well, all Hebrews are not all Hebrews. There's Benjaminites, and there's Judahites, and there's Simeonites, and so they all come into the city. You have all kinds of different folks with different backgrounds streaming in to participate in this act of worshiping one God together, regardless 
of where they're coming from, they all had one name on their lips. They all had one God in their hearts. See, worship for Micaiah's family was diverse, and it was cross-cultural. By the sheer reality that humanity is diverse and cross-cultural. And this worship that was taking place in the city of Jerusalem, the city of Shalom, was supposed to represent all the different kinds of people whom God had made to stream back in and to worship him. This diverse group of people could find wholeness or shalom or peace, not because of some man-made unity project, but because they had one name of God on their lips, because they had one grace of God that was the structure for their life and that had welcomed them into this house. And in Jerusalem, the the worshipers, if you'll notice in verse 5, they rejoice about thrones and judgments, which might sound strange to us. I think in the psalm they're rejoicing because, yes, there might have been actual judges and seats of authority there in Jerusalem that could meet out and and mediate between tribal conflicts that heard cases. But also because in Jerusalem, you heard the decrees and the commandments and the ways of Yahweh your God. In fact, every part of worship, including this very road trip mixtape, Psalm 122 itself, was full of God's word that had been spoken by the prophets and by God's people. And maybe our young worshiper, Israelite girl, maybe she heard verses like Deuteronomy 5.33, you shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that all may go well with you, that you may live long in the land. See, worship for Micaiah's family was full of words and promises and commandments and judgments of God. And these words over and over again were to be heard and spoken and prayed and confessed and assured and chanted and taught and memorized and to be absorbed over and over again year after year from the womb to the tomb for the young and for the old. If you can see now, worship was the foundational reality to even knowing who God was, what the world was, who we were. It's worshiping the God of Shalom. And now to maybe get at that word a little deeper, what does that mean? God seems to use it a lot in the scripture to describe who he is and and what the world is supposed to be like. A famous book called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be defined Shalom, uh, Cornelius Plantinga was the author. He described Shalom this way. Shalom is this, it's the webbing together of God, humans and all creation in justice and fulfillment and delight. That's what the Hebrew prophets called Shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies, all right? In the Bible, Shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness and delight a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts are fruitfully employed. It is a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes in the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things are supposed to be in the world. When we teach Shalom every October, Elder Kenny and I, to the children in our communicants class to get them ready to come to the Lord's table, we teach them that we begin with teaching Shalom. See, we don't begin with teaching sin. We begin with teaching creation and Shalom. Get your theology right. That's how the Bible starts. And so we, we teach them a triangle, a Shalom triangle. And at the top, there is the maker, the creator God. 
And over here, on the left side, there is humanity and the community of humanity and each human person with their selves. And then over here is creation, the earth, the sky, the seas, the, the, creation, the, the environment. And at the beginning, when God made the world, the Christian faith and the Jewish faith tells a story that all three of these aspects of the triangle were in complete harmony with one another. Sharks didn't eat people. There weren't natural disasters. Humans didn't feel so divided from their soul and from their self and have all sorts of psychological and spiritual issues. There was no mental illness. Everyone had enough food on their plate. No one went hungry. There was justice for all. No one oppressed anyone else. No one hated anyone else because of the way they looked or the way they talked. It was the way the world was meant to be, right? Shalom is life in communion with God in communion with creation, and in communion with other people. It's experiencing the completeness of all of who God is and, and experiencing the peace of knowing God and his story. That's what shalom was. And that's why worship was the foundational reality in Micaiah and in our life. Worship provides the structure of our life. It is to be a picture in this sanctuary or in any sanctuary of God bringing in a diverse group of people and uniting them around who he is. Worship is foundational because it fills our lives with the words and commandments and promises of God. These words, these words of worship, they are meant to accompany us week after week, year after year, and be the center of our life as we journey through this life from the womb to the tomb. In this very sanctuary... In this church, we bless brand new babies in the word. We baptize them. In the sanctuary, we lay our dead to rest and bless their lives with the promise of eternal life that comes from God's word. Everything we do in the sanctuary every single week is just the word of God, spoken, uh, chanted, sung in hymns, sung differently over and over again. That is what provides the meaning for our life. But all of this, as in Micaiah's life, as the family has to get called to Jerusalem three times a year, it takes intentionality. Worship does not just arise from your feelings of wanting to go to worship. As I've said before, if Christians worshiped only when they felt like it, no one would hardly worship at all. Worship is a command from God. But of course you can ignore it. One of the vulnerable and funny things about being a pastor is having your life dominated by this Sunday after Sunday rhythm. <laughs> this is what I do every week. This is the centerpiece of my week. And every single week, I find myself wondering before the service, is anyone going to come today? Because you all don't get paid to be here. It's a voluntary act. And we come to worship, as I said, not because we are socially compelled to, though that might be true of some of you children in the sanctuary. <laughs> But that only lasts for a certain number of years. At some point, you've got to decide if worship is something that you want to do. And you have to discover the only true reason for worshiping in the first place, which is not social pressure or meriting God's favor. It is that you've discovered a God who's just irresistible. It is that you've discovered a God who's beautiful, who answers all your longing and burning questions even while you suffer, who gives you a hope and a future. That's why worship was the centerpiece of shalom, you see. Life of faith for us is a journey deeper with God and a journey deeper into God's shalom and love. It is a long obedience in the same direction, as Eugene Peterson said. And over time, 
that participation in worship, that responsive, intentional practice beckons us not to just sit back and be passive receivers, but to be formed to be a part of the God of Shalom's story, to be formed in the way of Shalom. And so that's why the second part of the psalm speaks to directly to formation. It is a response to what God has done, and then I take that and I put that on my lips, and I put that in my heart, and I put that in my feet and my hands. So being formed in the way of Shalom. The road trip mixtape continues on to verse 6. Pray for the Shalom of Jerusalem, the house of Shalom. (laughs) May they be secure who love you. Shalom be within your walls and security within your towers. So our worshiper, Micaiah, and her family now sing a line that commands their participation in different ways. I don't know what's happening. Is the worship leader commanding them to pray for the peace of the dwelling of God? Or are they commanding those around them to pray for the shalom of God's house? I don't know. Maybe it's both. But again, when you imagine this reality of all these different kinds of people coming into Jerusalem, you imagine the great potential for conflict. Again, go read the Old Testament historical books. Tribal conflict in that day was no less prevalent and damaging than tribal conflict is now, both within the church and outside of the church. To pursue true shalomic community will always come with the difficult work of conflict. Sometimes that's the simple mundane conflict of the way words are spoken and gossip and triangulation and lying. Not saying y'all do any of that, but I'm just saying if you did. Oftentimes... Though that conflict, it takes place in the larger backdrop of meta-conflicts, meta-tribal conflicts, histories of brutality and injustice and inequity, and all the myriad of ways that we are navigating a broken cultural world while still being formed in our own cultural identities. It's the hard and necessary work, but if you actually want shalom and wholeness within a worshiping community, you have to pursue it. If you want true shalom and not fake shalom, if you actually want to be peacemakers and not peace fakers, the kind of peace fakers that Jeremiah the prophet famously condemned when he wrote, the prophets have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying shalom, shalom, when there is no shalom. See, people want to make shalom out of our history of race and hatred in in, in America by using blanket words like gospel and unity without addressing the wounds of the people. People want to complain about young people's crime and the crime of young people without addressing the social, societal, and familial wounds that produce wounded young people, that hurt people. See, that's shalom faking, not shalom making. And Jesus said, blessed are the shalom makers, didn't he? And so the song continues by praying a blessing over the place, and it introduces another Hebrew word that we translate security. It's the Hebrew word shalva. And shalva means not just security or prosperity, like I got enough money in my bank account and I have an arsenal of weapons. No. Shalva is a complete ease of being. It is a spirit of leisure and freedom. Shalva is freedom from guilt and shame and fear in God's presence. The only way you can be at ease in the presence of a holy God is knowing that there's mercy and forgiveness for you. The song says, May they have Shalva who love you. But being formed, see, being formed in the way of shalom within the world, you cannot move out and be a shalomic agent in the world without knowing that you have been made peace with within your heart, that God has made peace with you. 
or else otherwise you'll be constantly insecure, constantly wondering what other people think about you or if you are doing things perfectly. No, I can have shalva if I know that God's mercy is everlasting and that as I wake up every day to participate in God's redemptive project, I know that God has forgiven me and that his mercies are new every morning. I can be secure. But shalva within a city, security within a city, is also what this psalm is talking about. It is talking about a real city. And we Christians and and people of faith live in real cities. Shalva within a city is not having to lock your doors at night. It's not having to look over your shoulder, wondering if someone's there to assault you. And that's why the song, with all these worshipers standing in the, the midst of Jerusalem, asks them to pray for their place. And that's how the life of being formed in the way of shalom begins, evidently, is with prayer. Because prayer, over and over again, places you within the powerful presence of an all-powerful God and teaches you reliantly to ask for things. This word translated pray here in the psalm is the simple Hebrew word for ask that you would use to ask for one more helping on your plate or a glass of water. The song is leading the worshipers, is leading God's people to simply ask for shalva in their city. It's, it's, it's teaching them to look at their city and see where the needs are, where the disasters are, where the hurt is, where the crime is, where the pain is, and to ask the Lord of the universe to bring shalva to my place, to bring shalom to my city. Again, going back to the prophet Jeremiah, to a passage you might know well, when he's writing to the exiles of Israel who were really far away from Jerusalem, they were in Babylon, and he famously instructs them in Jeremiah 29. Just hear this scripture. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. What does God want them to do? Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Don't decrease, but seek the shalom of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. And then this amazing verse. For in the shalom of the city, you will find your shalom. In the shalom of the city, you will find your shalom. That's basically what Psalm 122 is saying. As we pray and act as agents of peace and shalom and wholeness and flourishing in our city, we experience the fruit of that work of prayer, of service. But all true prayer doesn't end with prayer, just prayer. Prayer connects us with the source of God's power to walk in the way of God's power. It connects us with God's shalom so that we might walk in the way of shalom. And that, most poignantly, is how our song ends. I was not lying to you when I said this psalm is about worship and formation. Micaiah, our young Hebrew worshiper and her family, finally, they they have received all of who God is in worship, and they take up this commitment. Do you see that? In verse 8 and 9, look at it with me. It says, for my brothers and my companions' sake, I will say, shalom be within you. And for the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. See, if I know the God of shalom, and I know the God who gives me his shalom, and I know the God who gives me his security, then I don't have to live by the ways of ambition, 
of pride, of violence, or of fear, I can truly start to live for the sake of someone else. What did Jesus say the greatest commandment is? It is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what is like it? To love your neighbor as yourself. This is all spiritual formation in the Bible. You cannot, be, you cannot claim to be a spiritual person just because you have many devotional practices or you might know a lot about God. There are so many people in the world who know a lot about God, but they treat their neighbors like trash. And that's how I know you don't know God. This is what Jesus teaches us over and over again. True True formation into the way of Jesus will always bear one result over and over again. It is a life lived for the sake of someone else. Always. And examining our lives and the way we are living or not living for other people, the way we are ultimately serving God to boost our own ego, the, the way we are ultimately building our lives and, and securing our prosperity or our 401ks or our future plans or our children's college education. But if we don't have love, it's not worth anything. That's the ultimate aim of Christian formation. In verse 8, the worshiper communicates that this life is lived for the sake of the other. She says, my brothers and my companions. Another way to think about that is that she's talking about the people who are very close with her, but also just all of her neighbors, her companions. She's living her life now. She says, I want to live for their sake. And then in verse 9, it reveals the ultimate motivation, living for the sake of the house of God. It means wanting to live in such a way that the dwelling of God, the kingdom of God, might come among my place, my neighbors, in every nook and cranny, that I would see shalom seep into the cracks and crevices and fill up the gaps and make whole what's been broken, repair every social and spiritual wound, free every addict, break every train, chain, meet every need. That's how the psalm ends. Recently, I was at a family reunion of, uh, on my wife's side of the family. And I met an amazing second cousin of my wife. And uh, this woman, her name is Rosalind. I'm going to call her Sister Rosalind because Rosalind has been a nun in Brooklyn for decades <laughs> as part of the Order of St. Joseph. And being who I am, I cornered Sister Rosalind at the family reunion because if you know me, I'm going to talk to the nun. And I want to hear everything about what it's like to be a nun. <laughs> And so I was asking her her many experiences over the decades of just being in a religious order, living in Brooklyn, serving people, and I asked her this question. And I said to her, what really makes your order, the order of St. Joseph, like what makes you all unique? You know, what makes you stand out from other orders? How would I know you? And she said very, casual, some, she said very casually something that kind of blew me away once I started to think about it. Well, she said, well, we just live a simple life and share everything in common. We pray and we sing every day. But I guess we're known as teachers because when our order came into the city, it was discerned that the greatest area of need within our city was that of education. And so we became teachers. Before that, we were known as nurses because the greatest need in our city was the need for medical care. I was so struck by that statement because it's the simple assumption of a way of life that flips the script on everything we're taught. 
How am I to pursue my purpose in life or shalom in my city? We are typically told, do what makes you happy. Do what brings you purpose. Do what fulfills you. But for Sister Rosalind, it was, what is the greatest area of need in my place? That is what I will become for my place. It is a self-forgetfulness. It is not living by the narratives of self-referential culture. It is saying, here's what Shalom says. Where is there an area of need? Where is there a gap? I want to become that for my place. I want to fill the need, to meet the need, to set the captive free. And that's how Psalm 122 ends, I will seek your good. What if for the next generations of ministry in this simple place, we as a church were known as just people who simply looked for needs and met them, who simply fulfilled what it was needed within our place, beautiful and broken as it is. Where are the gaps? What if Christians were known as gap fillers instead of those who stood on the outside complaining and condemning and bickering all the time? What would that do to the vision of Christian mission and formation? It inspires me. It drives me. It's what I pray for. But it takes a lifetime. <laughs> this kind of formation is not done overnight. It is crockpot, not microwave spiritual formation. You got to come year after year. You got to hear the words year after year. You got to hear the story again and again and be formed into that story and find it to be more compelling than any other narrative out there. And to live as Jesus said, hunger, hungering and thirsting for the kingdom of God, desiring it above anything else. I will seek your good for the sake of the house of the Lord. The remarkable thing as I close about Psalm 122 is that generations after the time of David, who the psalm is by, or by our hypothetical Micaiah and her family, there was another young Hebrew who walked the path to Jerusalem. He sang the very same songs. We can know it. Year after year, this young Hebrew boy would have walked up to Jerusalem from his town of Nazareth, and he would have sung these psalms over and over again. His name was Yeshua, or in English, Jesus. You can read about his journeys over and over again in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, the many, many times when the text of the Gospels literally say he goes up to Jerusalem. And this Yeshua began a ministry of shalom in his place. When we teach our kids the second part or the third part of, of the story, we teach them again that first shalom triangle. And then when we teach them sin, we say the triangle and the lines and the connections are broken. And now everything is not working the way it's supposed to be. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. Bodies break down. There is demon possession and mental illness and injustice and racism. But when you begin to see the ministry of Jesus Christ, what you begin to see is that those lines start to get repaired again. He physically heals people's bodies. He spiritually frees people from sin. And what does he say so often when he heals people? He says, go in shalom. Your faith has saved you. And in one of the most famous instances of Jesus' ministry is in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. It says that 
Jesus went up to Jerusalem and he stood on the outskirts of Jerusalem, the house of peace, and he wept over the city. And he said this, Would that you, even you, Jerusalem, had known on this day the things that make for shalom. And then he, above any other one that could ever claim it, did something not for the sake of himself, but for the sake of the ones he loved. And that is, he completed his life, his whole lifelong project of self-offering. Why? To make peace, to make shalom between God and people and people and creation. And that is God's project begun in Jesus' life and ministry, advanced on the cross, advanced by the resurrection when a, when a dead body came back together and was a sign of the way things will be. It is a sign of completed shalom. The project when he said, I will send my spirit to you, and the New Testament later relates that now that, God has, now that Jesus has sent his spirit to us, we have become living stones. And as our assurance said today, we are being what? Built together into a dwelling place of God. See, what the New Testament does is it takes all this beautiful imagery of Psalm 122, and Jerusalem doesn't just become one place or one city or one people anymore. Jerusalem becomes a whole global project. And wherever God and Jesus by his spirit dwells, there is God's shalom project. There are God's worshiping people dwelling within their diversity in a spirit of unity because they have the name of one Lord on their lips. There is the city of God coming down to the city of earth. And that is God's project. That is God's mission that he calls this community to. And that's what Psalm 122 is just a simple reminder for us. The essential things of our life together as a people, worshiping the God of Shalom and being formed into the way of Shalom, the way that Jesus has taught us. The book of Hebrews, writing to pilgrim Christians like you and me, living in a city, it ends the letter like this. Now may the God of Shalom, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, forming in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.